0: This week on FX Guide TV.
1: We go to Canada and talk to Image Engine about the new film, Immortals.
0: This and more
1: coming up next. Hello and welcome to FX Guide TV. I'm Angie Dale. This week in the spirit of 300, we go back to a mythical time with the new film, Immortals, and the team at Canada's Image Engine. The king, Hyperion, has declared war on all of
0: humanity. If there is
2: one human who could lead them against Hyperion, it would be Theseus. He does not fear danger. He fears only the failure to defend his freedom. a really thorough approach. Really, it was. Uh, Raymond Geringer was the VFX supervisor on set, and uh, you know he, he spent a lot of time dealing with. He actually, you know, sort of generated a basic CG model. They they set up a Moses system so they could actually sort of see what this looked like as they were actually getting ready to get set up for filming and all the rest of it. And pulling quick keys so everybody could kind of visualize it. And so obviously all the, the lighting was considered at that time as well. So it was it was very very thorough. And it was shot
1: uh, green screen pretty much. Because...
2: Yeah, green screen in the studio in Montreal
1: and now you were shooting one on genesis
2: yes that's right genesis and uh, that
1: was like i guess in a in genesis log format give you
2: a yeah do that, you? yeah genesis panelog for
1: it, yeah. so. so so on set you've got uh, that lighting pretty much set up to the background mm-hmm. but what are you recording on set? Are you doing HDRs or anything?
2: Yeah, we were, t- yeah, we were taking HDR, a lot of set photography obviously we were d- just generally logging camera data we, were, we had a very good, like the lighters actually on set were very good at supplying us PDF documents but there are all other lighting configurations and, uh, and it, was a pretty, it was a pretty tight VFX shoot really.
1: And coming back into the studio I mean for example were you just trying to build off the HDR for the lighting setups or were you trying to, mm-hmm. because obviously there's the lighting that you would have for the hero actor, but they're not mm-hmm. going to light cliffs that aren't there. Yeah,
2: no. Basically, what what we did to actually get decent environment lighting, we we did a lot of um, shoot of shoot our own. Eyes down at a place uh, called Iona Island in Vancouver, which you actually have like a uh, it's a it's a long promenade that goes out into the ocean. It was nothing really around it, so we went down there and set up HDRs and did our own. We also ended up buying uh, an HDR package of basically about sort of 40 different lighting environments uh, from a guy called Dutch Skies, okay. and um, which gives us a whole library, which enabled us to sort of deal with the evening, midday, morning, you know, all the other different sort of times of day. So.
1: Which begs the question: Were the skies that went in uh, just map paintings that you guys did, or were
2: they <laughs> photography? They, they, we basically, well, for I'd say for about 20% of the show, they were photography, and then the rest were map painted.
1: Because you actually had to put some,
2: like uh, eagles or hawks rather, yeah. into, a, a hawk, a yeah. <laughs> into yeah. a sky. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, um, initially started as, a, as it didn't really start as a very big deal. Our initial hawk build was just supposed to be something that we kind of see from a distance. But as as things progressed and there was a lot of storyline developments and changes, it actually became more or less a character. So our build obviously had to constantly be sort of improved upon so we could bring it closer to camera. And then we, to, we actually have a point where we're looking through the hawk's eyes at the set as well. So.
1: Which I guess begs the thing, how much could you do matte paintings or how much has had to be fully CG digital environments? Because obviously if yeah. it's hawk cam I imagine you're covering a lot of ground and
2: a Yeah, lot of- yeah. I mean basically the, really the, the way the work went in the end, I would say it was more like an 80% matte painted environment. But it, we did start with a, a very thorough CG build, and, uh, and at the time it seemed to be the best best route to sort of take, and it was quite solid. And we had quite good feedback on it, but then as things, there different vendors working on it. There came with different looks and different ideas, and um, you know, so we had to kind of basically modify our stuff very quickly at the end and really what it, that ends up being is a matte painted approach.
1: So for the matte painting were you starting out with the CG environment and then outputting yeah. a bunch of stills that were painted over? Yeah, yeah, that's right. So what were you sort of modeling and rendering in?
2: Uh, we were doing all the modeling in Maya and then rendering in 3D light. Mm-hmm.
1: And then uh, presumably it's Still Photoshop after that,
2: right? Yeah, that's right, yeah.
1: And so those are being done at, so you, you would have had plate photography at 1920 by 1080. Mm-hmm. How big did you make your matte paintings?
2: Uh, just, well, there's a couple of shots where we had quite extreme camera moves. So we actually broke it down to three different camera positions and did them in about 6K, and one was done at 4K. But generally speaking, the, the rest of the work was managed at 4K.
1: And did you need to then re-project that over rough geometry, or was it literally just...
2: Yeah, yeah, we did project over. Yeah. So uh, there's a couple of shots which actually were lock-offs. So we, we obviously had a greater wow, flexibility an there. Off, yeah. with the okay. Well, that's yeah, good. Yeah. Yeah. No, there was something that was actually quite nice with the show, but also part of the challenge is that um, Tarzan Singh does really like to um, quite have a very theatrical approach, and he doesn't like to have the camera too handheld and roaming around. So we ended up having you know uh, like, you know long frame counts where we literally are just studying or 80% of our frame, which is entirely made up of matte painting or CG, so it became quite a challenge, really, to, because obviously you can't really kind of uh, get away from the fact because you're not moving away from it, so. And what did um, you do
1: to add depth into those big shots? Because you know, traditionally mm-hmm. we put a flock of birds in the background somewhere. Or
2: there, there was a few flocks of birds in there, but, um, but obviously we just did a lot of atmospherics, and uh, it, it was, um, god rays and lens flares and things like that were obviously very popular, and then uh, just a lot of depth hazing and cues. And, uh, yeah we had a lot of uh, sort of out rocky outcroppings in the ocean as well so we you know you get a sense of scale going further and further back
1: now no matter how good an actor is they're not firing real arrows they're not killing people with real swords yeah so i presume you had to do some work on either giving them digital weapons or mm-hmm. just taking what they had and realigning them, is that
2: right? Yeah, there was a bit of realignment, definitely. But, uh, but generally speaking, it, weren't, it really wasn't that far off, the trajectories. There was a lot of time spent with the stunt team there and I think they really got it pretty good, actually. And then, um, But we, had, we could also do things like do lots of retiming to work things in our favour so you look like you're getting a larger impact than you initially would be. And then the rest of it, obviously, was we did a lot of CG weaponry. We did, uh, you know, spears. Obviously, the magical arrows. We did daggers, and then we did uh, flying limbs and things like that, as well, where we chop their legs off and. All the rest of it. Was
1: there much look development on those arrows and stuff? Because you know, mm-hmm. you can read in a script, "magic arrows fired." Yeah, but yeah. My idea of a magic arrow and anybody else's might be really different.
2: Yeah, you no, know, the arrows were quite. They were quite a challenge, really. We had to kind of take many different approaches, really. And um, it, you know, our, our initial thought was really to get something that sort of tied into. The bow itself, which has a very uh, glistening and glittery effect, and we, so we really wanted to sort of keep a certain consistency there, and uh, you know, which seemed to be the route that was taken in the end. But at one point, we even had you know, spinning arrowheads which uh, sort of fan out and look you know, far more um, Iron Maiden rather than. Uh, the route that was actually taken in the end, but uh, it was quite a challenge to come up with a look there. I mean,
1: there's a couple of shots where we're travelling with the arrow, which mm-hmm. this isn't a problem, but there are other shots, and look, I've done arrow shots myself, and the trouble is, arrows actually move pretty fast. They're not yeah. as good as bullets, but
2: they're not bad. Yeah, no, I mean, there was quite a lot of um, time spent on that actual animation, and we did a lot of just, obviously, play-blast renders and a lot of backwards and forwards between us and the client, just really discussing about that camera move, and getting a really good sort of readability. You know, it's at one point we we're you know, we we're amongst the arrows, at one point the arrows were a lot farther ahead of us. You know, it, it took a good few goes to come up with something that pleased everybody.
1: Did you have live action? Because I mean I, I... I guess mostly live action. If you shot a real arrow, it would be just a blurred kind of dash.
2: Yeah. Yeah. No. No. There was no live action on these. So. It was, uh, so it was just your really animation. You, you
1: controlled mm. all the arrows, so you kind of set the agenda on them.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So I think basically what we did, really, for the the flying through the set shot, uh, was really we we sort of focused on it on a decent timing that we felt had a good sense of like getting from A to B. And then once we'd nailed the A to B, then we, we could really focus on the arrows from that point. And we had to obviously constantly adjust cameras and get to get trajectories right and change the. Angle. Angle of uh, Theseus's arms as well, because he was kind of at one point he was pointing in the air, so we have to have him. Realign and you know point in the right direction. So yeah.
1: but one of the things I thought was interesting is the use of actual practical hidden lights to actually give you some contact lighting because yeah. it lights up that magical arrow and bow. Yeah, it was, that was sort of a nice touch of thought.
2: Yeah, no, it's again it was, a, it was Raymond idea. It was idea. It was a great idea, and it, it, uh, the only real challenge for us was obviously there was a lot of there was cables that were basically run down so the length of the arm. So just explaining
1: what they actually had on his. On yeah,
2: his... sure. But he had a small LED, which is basically about you know um, half the size of the palm of your hand and that was taped into his hand with a cable running down his arm. Right. And it literally it was somebody down on the ground manually turning on and off a switch as, as, you know, as, we're, as the director yelling out right, action. Right, so And the
1: camera's and, on the far side of his arm, yeah. and then he's literally lighting his own face
2: effectively. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Which is great because it gave us a real you know, nice natural lighting and uh, you know, oh, yeah. something to match into. I think the only thing we had to really sort of augment really in there was just colour temperature. Obviously as the, as the arrow looked changed we needed to make sure the lighting looked the same. And
1: well, the only problem I can imagine with that is if the guy on the ground with the little switch didn't mm-hmm. knock it off on the spot, yeah. You're yeah. going to have glow on his face, and the arrows kind yeah. of left. Yeah,
2: so we, we did have a few shots where we had to kind of resolve the issue, and that was, you know, again, the action because the camera's not—it's not a very wild camera mm-hmm. move; it's a very, fairly static camera move. And Theseus's actions are fairly were fairly uniform as well, so we, we had clean frames basically there. Now Theseus's these
1: face wasn't the only thing that you worked on because mm-hmm. one of the characters transforms from her.
2: Well, can you explain mm. the shot? Yeah, obviously we had the Athena reveal. So Athena basically takes a, well, I mean, all the gods take a human form when they come down to Earth. So Athena, basically for her, her whole sequence, she's standing in front of a, quite an ornate um, pillar wall and a, and, a, and a rock face as well. And she was uh, actually body painted uh, at the time and has uh, to have her standing in front of this wall. The gag being that she knows that you can't see her straight away and she over time sort of reveals herself. So, basically, generally speaking, the paintwork was pretty good, but we had to do some augmentation to sort of get it to really look like she was blending in. And then uh, the final reveal is she, uh, basically, she pulls up a a golden magical cape from the ground, and as she sort of swipes it across her body, she reveals her human form. And what we had to do for that is, um, again, the body movement wasn't too wild, you know, so for for the actual lower torso, we just basically did um, stills photography and worked Well So, just set that up for me, so
1: the hero plate on set is Mm -hmm. her... Not with the makeup yep. on. Yeah, okay. that's yep.
2: right. So, yeah, so her in her natural form. And then um, basically we did a, a CG head replacement and because um, you know, she had a full 180 rotation pretty much on there. And we projected uh, the painted look onto that CG head and you know, kind of replaced it from there. So we start by basically painting her out, replacing it with um, you know, stills photography warped into place for the lower torso, and then a CG head on the top. And then all of that's run through basically a fractal effect with a lot of comp tricks to sort of get nice timing and all the rest of it. So, uh, yeah, kind and of, what
1: is your comp pipeline?
2: Uh, well, this, we're a full you know nuke facility here. So um, you know it's Nuke Maya rendering in 3D light for all the 3D side of things. And um, yeah, maybe it's pretty much so. So
1: on a sequence like that, do you like to get like tons of passes out of CG for the nuke compositing? Or do you like to mm-hmm. nail it in the... Uh, renderer and then have some yeah. less. Complex. Well, this
2: this show a bit of a challenge because it was kind of tricky to just get it perfect in the three D in three D. So basically, what we ended up doing is taking I'd say probably about six different variations of this kind of fractal treatment and then one clean pass of our head. And then we have a um, we have a good set of um, like default AOVs that we have available to us by rendering in three D light. Which we, we can end up with about sort of forty AOVs if you want them all. But obviously, we didn't really need the full extent on that one. And then the rest was really in the hands of the compers just to sort of try different timings out and try different looks out and the rest of it. So,
1: so you guys delivered what? How many shots on this?
2: It was, uh, I think the total shot count was about 127.
1: And then, mm-hmm. even though some people may be seeing the film in stereo, you're actually mm-hmm. doing a mono delivery for later yeah. dimensionalization?
2: Basically, we, do, we, we work on the basis of delivering mono. And actually, most of the film wasn't shot stereo, but there, there, there was a chunk of it that was shot stereo. So. But, um, but that sort of came later in the day, after, after our sequences were assigned to us. And basically, what we did is a second delivery where we went back to the comps and broke them all down to, into different stages. Oh, right. And um, delivered you know, passes to the stereo uh, facilities, which are being dealt with externally.
1: I wonder if I could ask you about uh, bidding jobs that are stereo, either this film in particular or just sort of generally, because this film's going out in stereo, but a lot of your deliverables were in mono, but what with the second? I mean, how do you actually handle that? How do you even bid it?
0: Well, honestly, in the industry right now, it's a bit of a cumbersome process. Uh, I think uh, quite quickly the idea of delivering elements for post-conversion is going to become more of a norm and it'll get kind of a little bit more solid. But on this film, there was you know really quite a lot of back and forth that was required between us and the client. It's always a, um, a dialogue uh, situation because, the you know, it, at times there's the impression that certain things are just generated as a result of our normal visual effects process. As we go through Uh, creating the work, we create elements that uh, help and those elements may also double in the stereo uh, post-conversion process and that is true. The uh, awkward part is that there's lots of elements that that need to be created uh, brand new. Uh, and those obviously take artist time, disc space, uh, they take you know, increased use of licenses and so on. And that's really where a visual effects vendor generates our, our costs from. So I think it's, it's more about uh, you know, discussing those issues with, with your, your client and the productions that you're working with and making them aware of what your actual costs are and then uh, you know, associating that to ultimately what their challenge is, which is um, trying to convert you know flat images into stereoscopic images in a believable way and also in some cases a way that is that has the potential to undo a bit of the visual effects work that maybe was a cheat in 2d um and and really can't be uh, cheated in 3d yeah
1: it's the thing is not it? because you know you you literally can get away with stuff, especially in rig removal and wire removal and stuff that looks like something and it's mm. obviously something mm. else.
0: Yeah I think one of the most interesting things that we found was that the the easier the work was, uh, the more uh, incrementally expensive it was. Like some of the easier work was literally twice as expensive because we literally had to do things twice. Um, whereas with some of the other uh, more complex work, the actual sort of percentage increase in, in cost was actually quite marginal.
1: Yeah, I think most people think that the expense is in uh, rendering for the second hour, But in fact, the render cost isn't your biggest problem, is it?
0: No, and I think there, there are ways to get around that. There's some savvy technology that we can do. Um, but, you know, it was good for us to, to kind of wade into the post-conversion uh, issue, and I think we've got a much better understanding of, of actually how to communicate to our clients about uh, projects that do go through a post-conversion process. From a producing point of view for a second, in terms of
1: deliverables, is it like working with another facility on the same visual effects shots, in that obviously in that circumstance you'd be handing over elements and Mm -hmm. and assets, Mm -hmm. or is it like just a completely different world of deliverables because they're... Finals. I think it
0: I think it honestly can be both I think there's some uh, some shots that really require you to embrace the idea that you're working with another vendor to achieve another version of, of an effect and you really kind of think of it that way the effect is is working as a monoscopic effect and then you need to achieve another version and there's really quite a lot of back and forth and collaboration to achieve the result and ultimately it really doesn't matter who's doing the conversion and who's doing the primary effect provided those people are in sync and work together to, to provide each other with uh, the correct feedback, the correct elements. Um, other shots are, are as, as much as delivering a mat and a ZDEP path pass and you're done. So there's not a lot of collaboration uh, in, in that respect.
1: So how are you doing your reviews? Because obviously in one sense, of course, you're completely doing what the director wants in terms of the creative vision of the mm-hmm. film, but obviously you're dealing with this, the overall supervisor. Mm-hmm. Was uh, in this film something that you had you could do locally? Were you using Cinesync? I mean, how did you actually go through the process of...
0: Uh, Well, the film was shot in in Montreal, uh, posted in Los Angeles, and the work was done in uh, Montreal, Vancouver, and uh, San Francisco and L.A. So the the work was done pretty much all over the place, and the production uh, folks that we were uh, interacting with was primarily Raymond and uh, Jack Geist, Sean Nolan on the producing side. we're literally in, in all of those locations at, at all times, primarily in Montreal and, and, and Los Angeles. So uh, constant CineSync, constant conference calls, uh, secure FTP, file transfer, um, and the normal way that people in Vancouver have uh, gotten used to working over the years because of its uh, you know, our, our physical position being uh, where, where we're at. Um, same time zone as Los Angeles, but uh, you know, we work on projects all, all around the world. Um, our team, Simon uh, Hughes and, and Jordan Benwick, worked with uh, our R&D department to write a couple of uh, kind of custom tools that were very specific to Immortals, and that had more to do with the lookup. Um, there was a, a pretty aggressive grading uh, process yeah, going on. Who was doing on. the grade? The grade was done at uh, um, by Lee in in, uh, in Montreal at Technical I believe. Okay. Um, and uh, so there, you know, the the you know people often to have referred to this film as like a you know uh, being in the same vein as 300, and it's sort of the the best of examples and the worst of examples at the same time. Um, it's uh, the film, the the ultimately the color grading is a very kind of formalist grading. It's a very treated looking film, but. Um, you know, we have to try and work on uh, a more neutral ground. Um, Did you
1: get like preview 3D luts to see what that was going in, in the direction? Yes.
0: Of yeah. And so in 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 some cases, those luts changed quite frequently throughout the the process. So it was uh, challenging for us to to nail certain shots.
1: I mean, um, I mentioned the tonality of the cliffs and stuff, which could be really affected by an aggressive grade versus a kind of a...
0: Absolutely. I mean, you oftentimes you get pre-grades on a, a live-action plate that was uh, a small swatch of a person standing on a, uh, a set build, and the rest of the, the shot essentially was, was green screen. And then that uh, plate would get repositioned to the point that you know, 85% of the frame was uh, uh, you know, generated uh, by visual effects and CG. So when you're when you're dealing with that sort of situation, the pre-grade um, gets you know overridden by a huge amount of computer graphics work and the depth of this massive environment that we build. Um, so oftentimes, though, those kind of situations can be really challenging. Um, I think the more challenging part for us, in terms of the uh, quite apart from the camera format, was really just that our work existed in in pretty much every reel in the film. Um, we didn't have a we in had. Yes, and the trailer. The trailer was, uh, you know, uh, thick with our, our stuff. But uh, you know, I think that was the bigger challenge. Is that is that across the entire scope of the story, we had shots. We had shots in in, in uh, pretty much every reel. So, um, you know, those those looks and those uh, reels often uh, varied from you know the the neutral uh, photography all the way through to the grade. So we really had to do a lot of a lot of work with. Uh, the production to line Plus, things up. Plus, if you're up. peppered
1: throughout all the reels, I can imagine after turnover, you could obviously have revisions to the edit as the shots were dropping in and as those reels were developing. Whereas, you've got one sequence, it's like, well, they finally got this sequence down. So yes. now we, we know what our shot front yeah. counts are.
0: It does, uh, it does add an incremental uh, management hit for us, for sure. Um, I think it's great because, you know, you kind of have a feeling like you worked on the entire story, you worked on the entire film, but um, it is very challenging to keep up to, to editorial.
1: And if you want to see more from Image Engine, then check out our coverage of The Thing, episode 123. And don't forget, you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash Until next time, see ya. For more industry news, in-depth features, podcasts and forums, check out fxguide.com. And for visual effects
0: training, check out fxphd.com.